lots of lousy businesses. And there's lots of wonderful businesses. It's the art and science of money. My job over the years has been to try and figure out which is which. It's Hi-Fi Radio. From the AM640 studios in Toronto. With Hi-Fi portfolio managers at Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. Here's Wolfgang Klein and Jack Hartle. Good morning, Toronto, and welcome to Hi-Fi Radio, AM640. I am Wolfgang Klein, your co-host, Jack Hartle in the studio, your other co-host, and we do welcome you to the show, our second show, and we're very excited about it. We have a fantastic lineup today, and as it is Earth Day, the show will have an Earth Day hue to it. Uh, We're going to be speaking with Nick Blitterswick of UGE, a solar installation company, solar energy. Prices have gone down. It is becoming very economical. Nick is going to talk to us about that. Uh, We are then going to be talking to John Queeley, who is a very, very dynamic uh, tech analyst, uh, covers some very, very funky, uh, unique, uh, disruptive technology-type businesses from LED lighting to uh, energy management systems, um, just response management systems, very, very dynamic stuff. Uh, Later in the show, we're going to have Mr. Brad Lamb. Uh, We all know him in Toronto, that beautiful, handsome man with the sheep's clothing. And we're not talking about a wolf in sheep's clothing. We're talking about a lamb in sheep's clothing here. Fantastic, dynamic real estate developer. Brad Lamb's going to be joining us, uh, followed by Rafi, who is a very uh, dynamic Calgary energy trader uh, who runs the fund that Jack and I have our clients invested in, Canoe Energy. Uh, Rafi's going to be here to talk to us about the energy market and where it is going to go. Uh, and we also have on the show Michael Graham, who covers all those funky tech stocks. And Jack, you've said to me many times, uh, technology, in fact, is good for the earth. Why, why do you believe that? Just being more productive with the resources that we have, and that's essentially what uh, technology does for us, uh, allows us to be more productive and allow to do, us to do more with less. And at the end of the day, that is green, and it allows us to actually make some green money for our clients. Very nice, very nice. So uh, without further ado, uh, let's welcome Nick Blitterswick uh, to the show. Nick, thank you for joining us. Yeah, no, thank you, Wolfgang. Good morning. Good morning. So again, it is Earth Day, and so I figured I'd have you kick off our show uh, as you're a very, as as far as I can see, a very Earth-friendly type business. So again, how do you pronounce the name of your company? Yeah, so it's UGE International. Mm -hmm. And what exactly does your company do that is so Earth-friendly? Yeah, so we're a a commercial solar company, or, or, uh, or more specifically, what we do is um, in, in the most uh, most simple case, we go to businesses and we say, hey, like, you know, since the beginning of time as we know it, at least, we've all been purchasing energy from the utility, um, but solar costs have come down so much in the last few years that now what we can do is actually put solar typically on your rooftop, uh, sell you the energy at a rate late, uh, less than what you could pay to utilities. So it's an immediate savings proposition for our customer. Um, so we handle that full end-to-end uh, process of doing that. I'm looking at your slide deck here, Nick, and uh, just going back uh, several years, you, you know, specifically, what has happened to the price of solar on a megawatt or gigawatt basis? Yeah, you know, we often in this uh, in the industry talk about it on a per watt basis, and and the first time we purchased solar panels was 2009, uh, and at that point in time, we paid almost four dollars per watt. Uh, right now, we're paying about 34 cents a watt. Um, so, the, so the increase in less than 10 years has been more than 90%. And so, you know, solar went from something that, you know, I originally started UGE um, based on on wanting to do something good for the environment, but now it's just simply become a a, a way to to do good for your wallet instead. And and why has the cost come down so much there, Nick? 
Yeah, you know, it's a combination of two things. Number one is that, like, from a technology perspective, the, the equipment is getting better and better, uh, more efficient, and squeezing more out of the same amount of, of resources. Um, but on the other hand, like, the size of the industry is growing so rapidly. So it's almost doubling every two years. Uh, and as that's happened, the economies of scale in the industry have just uh, skyrocketed as well. So Nick, in, in terms of, because it is Earth Day, um, and when I think Earth Day, I certainly do not think about Donald Trump bringing back coal. Uh, so has Trump been bad for solar? Well, he hasn't been good. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but I, think that, I, I think outside of that, though, like, you know, if, I think if Trump had been uh, been president eight years ago, then he probably could have taken out some of the some of the wind of the sails, so to speak, for the industry. But um, where the industry's gotten now is that it's just simply cheaper than than, than the alternative. And so it's uh, and and like I used to say when I started the company that I thought solar would be the backbone of our energy infrastructure by 2100. Then I said 2050. And now I say 2030. Like the costs mm. have come down so much that you know if it's cheaper than the alternative, why would you go with fossil fuels? We're listening to uh, Nick Blitzwick of UGE, a solar installation company on this very fine Earth Day. Uh, Nick, um, is solar still dependent on subsidies? It's, uh, it's not dependent on subsidies, although obviously the subsidies help. Uh, well, how I think about it is, as the cost of solar comes down, it, you know, it seems like all the time there's more and more markets where solar makes sense without subsidies. With subsidies, the number of markets where it will, will make sense, of course, will increase. And, and I'm sure that you know, probably a lot of your listeners are in Ontario, right? Ontario was a market that came in with incentives very, very early. So like around the world, it was one of the first markets to come in with incentives and certainly got the Ontario market off the ground um, early. Um, mm-hmm. But where Ontario is now, it's, it's very close to that grid parity mark without any subsidies. And I think be, by the turn of the decade, we won't need any subsidies in, in, in Ontario to make it work. So when you say that Ontario, I guess, is very friendly, was that the, uh, the act of uh, 2009, I guess, the Green Energy Act that Ontario implemented? Exactly. That's the one. And what do you see with cap and trade now that it's coming into effect in Ontario? Well, you know, I, I was like on a personal level, and I think on a company level as well, our preference would just be, you know, cap and trade, carbon tax, like things like that just kind of level the playing field. And, and so like heavy incentives like were brought in, um, maybe distort the market a little bit. But I think like that's the right way to go about it as far as I'm concerned. I think it's, you know, we probably it's hard to find people who would disagree that there is some level of a cost with polluting. And so just putting a fair cost on that and then letting the, comp- letting the different technologies and energy sources battle it out, um, I think is better in the long run. Uh, this is, uh, you've been listening with John Blitterswick of UGE, a solar installation company. John, Nick, you've been great. Much appreciated. Um, coming up uh, in our next hit, we are going to be with John Queeley, uh, Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management's um, alternative um, and sustainability uh, analyst, a very, very dynamic individual. You're going to want to pay attention to what he has to say. It is so, so Earth Day. Don't go anywhere. There's more great show right after this. Life would be sunny. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from the AM640 Studios in Toronto. Love of Money, Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein. Talk Radio, AM 640. Welcome back. Uh, You are listening to Hi-Fi Radio, AM 640. Wolfgang Klein is your co-host. My wingman 
in the studio, Jack Hartle. Uh, a real pleasure to introduce to you John Quealy of Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management's research department uh, specializing in sustainability and industrial technologies. Uh, John, welcome welcome to the show. And I want to say today, of course, is Earth Day. And uh, as such, I figured you'd be a very special ind- individual to join us to discuss how your sector is so Earth-friendly. Well, yeah, thanks, Wolfgang. Thanks for the opportunity. Um, so 15-plus years here at Canaccord covering sustainability, all facets, water, energy, and power, everything from solar to lighting to smart grid, uh, some biofuels uh, thrown in there as well. So it's a secular theme that has seen some tremendous traction over those 15-plus years, especially as the prevalence of um, ESG, environmental, social, and governance issues, take hold at large pension funds and institutional managers. Um, The stocks themselves can be quite variable, quite risky, but think about uh, the prevalence and the success of companies like Tesla, for example, really making an imprint on the general investor and general consumer around sustainability technology. So it's been a good ride so far. It's been, you know, up and down, but a good ride. You you know, you have some very dynamic companies in your coverage universe. And again, these are esoteric names. Um, So again, this technology, this, this, this leads me to believe that this technology really is coming from grassroots and from the entrepreneurs and people's garage as opposed to from the General Electrics and the Honeywells of the world. You know, a company that I, I, I traded with you once, Enernoc. Uh, let's talk a little about that company because uh, I found it to be very, very green and, uh, uh, and just a dynamic business. Tell us a little bit about the Enernoc. Yeah, so Enernoc um, is is the world's largest provider of demand response. So this is a company that will go out and pay you to not use power during peak periods on the electric grid. Uh, for your listeners and clients in, in Ontario, you have tiered power prices up there. Several other parts of North America and in m- many parts of Europe, quite frankly, have tiered prices. So it's more expensive in the morning and the afternoon when people are getting up and doing things. Sounds like Uber Enernoc- surge pricing, isn't it? I'm sorry? It sounds like Uber's surge pricing we experience here in Toronto um, yeah, every now right. and then. <laughs> and so instead of paying a, a natural gas plant or uh, to, to be on spinning reserve in, in the background at 50% capacity, and, and then they call it in that afternoon rush hour, um, this would be a concept where you're paying, l- largely in the case of Enernoc, institutional users, commercial and industrial users of power to stop using so much. Um, they grew quite successfully over the years since their IPO in 2007. Um, um, lately, though, the stock's fallen on harder times. They've got a bit of a activist investor issue going on right now and a movement. They've spent many, many tens of millions of dollars trying to perfect energy intelligence software, and, and that's proven a harder endeavor. So now they're looking at strategic alternatives. But the market itself, when you think about moving towards decentralized energy production, when you think about connected cars, and remember, electricity generally is a just-in-time commodity. You need to produce Mm-hmm. right when you need it. The demand response market won't go away. Enernoc's place therein is a bit clouded at, at this point, and, and that's why we currently have a hold rating on it. But the notion of demand response nonetheless is, I think, here to say, and, and the, the logistics and, 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 and the intellect behind it uh, is very, very real. Um, again, you are listening to Hi-Fi Radio AM640. Uh, joining us has is John Guili of Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, here to give us his Earth Day spin on his very dynamic, sustainable names that he uh, covers. Uh, what else can you share with us uh, on your list of uh, innovation? So... Three companies I've highlighted that won't be, I don't think, uh, very well known to most 
retail investors or folks that aren't into the business to business, if I use that old um, uh, moniker mm-hmm. around service providers. One is Ecolab. It's a $40 billion provider of sustainability um, solutions around the world. These are the folks that make sure hospitality, institution, institutional, restaurant, food and beverage all have uh, safe, clean water, safe, mm-hmm. clean facilities. Uh, they also do some health care. It's a wonderful business model, 95% recurring, very profitable, uh, return on invested capital, always above that uh, 15 to 17% mark, and for the most part, a good dividend payer, a, a nice steady rock in an island of, like I said before, this, this sector tends to be very uh, uh, risky in, 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 uh, in in, throughout the in, throughout the cycles, so this is a company that grows. Last quarter, Wolfgang organically excluding energy, four uh, percent on in, on a fifteen billion dollar revenue number. That's pretty <laughs> impressive in yeah. our view. They also have a very under levered piece of the business. One third of the business is actually energy. So they provide emulsifiers and other chemicals uh, around the uh, oil and gas patch to get that uh, oil up make it more viscous and push it to the pipeline and the refiner. They actually have quite a big footprint um, in the Western Canadian oil sands, and they help get that bitumen out of the ground, make it flow quicker and cleaner, and they get paid a good price per barrel for that. So, Is it like a, some lube? Is that like lube for your crude? <laughs> well, that's almost rhyming. But yeah, no, that's that's Company's right. Company's Ecolab, symbol ECL, on the big board, by the way. So it's a real business trading on the New York Stock Exchange. And again, you and I spoke about this stuff off air, John, and I'm going to bring you back on because you're an absolutely brilliant guy. But the whole movement, and Jack wanted to get to it as well, that uh, analog to digital movement and what happens when you make that transition. Again, I'm an old broadcasting guy. I love my vinyl radio. I love my vinyl. I like analog radio. Of course, here we are doing just that. But uh, an absolute pleasure to have you with us, John Quilly, uh, sustainability analyst with Canaccord. We are going to have you back on the show, my good friend. So thank you for joining us. Uh, coming so up next, we are going to have a gentleman who, well, at midlife decided to hang up his skates. Although he wasn't a hockey player, he was a trader, but he knew how to skate on, on the trading floor, that's for sure, uh, and become what was called a macro tourist, uh, sitting in his uh, pajamas, I guess, trading away and just enjoying life. Uh, that's going to be right after the break. Stay tuned for that. Money. Don't go anywhere. There's more great show right after this. Money. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from the AM640 studios in Toronto. For the love of money. Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein. Talk Radio, AM 640. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio on AM 640, and I am Wolfgang Klein. In the studio is my wingman and portfolio manager, Jack Hartle. Uh, If you have your questions for us, you can always visit our website at uh, wolfgangkline.com. Post your questions, seek us out, uh, poke around. uh, Lots of interesting financial tidbits and lots of success, of course, to share with all of you there. But right now, we have a very, very interesting individual uh, on the line. His name is Kevin Muir, uh, author of The Macro Tourist. Is that The Macro Tourist, um, Kevin? Yep, you got it. I got the macro tourist. But really, this blog that you write uh, is but a hobby uh, to, I think, a grander uh, strategy that you have behind the scenes. I really want to get into your big brain uh, and have you share with the audience uh, all you know about the world of finance. I know you know a lot. Sounds good. 
Excellent. So well, where would you like to begin, Kevin? Because you got your eye on a lot of different things um, from, of course, the amount of debt that the central banks are carrying to uh, the world of inflation or reflation. Uh, what's really, really catching your fancy right now? And I like that piece, by the way, you, you, you wrote about the British pound. Um, very brilliant, brilliant, brilliant writing there as well. So please, the, the stage is yours. Um, well, I guess, you know, one of the things I did want to mention is the fact that um, I wrote a piece called The, um, the Most Unfun Bubble Ever. I have it and, right in front of me, yeah. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I've been around a little bit and I've uh, been through some bubbles. And I, I was going to, the, the whole, my piece kind of centered on the fact that this bubble, even though everyone's calling it a bubble, is not that much fun. Like when when we had the dot com bubble, everyone was you know getting rich and you know trading you know dot com stocks and and bragging all, about it and bragging about it and it was kind of it was a fun time to be around. And not only that, nobody even talked about it being a bubble. Like if you if you in the in the late nineties when you brought up with a bubble, people looked at you with like you had two heads. <laughs> and then uh, you know and then in, even in the 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 next bubble, which was the real estate bubble, or in the in the U S. But um, well, that was also accompanied by the kind of the China bubble that uh, with the Canadian resources. Again, it was a lot of fun. There's a lot of people making a lot of money. I know on Bay Street, I was shocked at how much. You know, I thought um, it, I used to work for Royal Bank and uh, as did I, as did Jack. And in we are alumni. <laughs> in 2000, I quit, and I thought, oh, I'll never see something so crazy as the dot-com bubble again. Yeah. And I kind of joked, and I said, I'm, hopefully I'm going to be like Michael Jordan after, you know, sinking the three points, you know, and winning the game, I'm going to leave at the high. Right. So, so when you're talking about bubbles right now, Kevin, are you talking about uh, equities, bonds, all asset classes? What, what bubbles do you Real see estate, right now? Estate? I guess that the thing about today is that the bubbles, everything seems so expensive. And everywhere you look, everyone's talking about a bubble. They, whether they talk about it being in equities, whether you talk about it in housing in Canada, or whether you talk about it in bonds, everywhere you look, there's everyone you know, claiming there's a bubble around. Mm-hmm. And, and, what, and the point is that I have is that basically, it's, although you know, they'll talk about things being expensive in a bubble, nobody's having any fun. This bubble isn't driven by the speculation that we saw in the 90s and in the 2000s. Mm-hmm. This bubble is driven by something different, and this bubble is driven by kind of the central banks, the worldwide lowering of interest rates, and interest rates are basically what sets the price of all assets. Correct. And and basically, it's pushed up the price of all financial assets and made it so that people are you know forced to go out the risk curve and invest in equities mm-hmm. or, you know, corporates or things that they really shouldn't be investing. Pot you know, stocks? Oftentimes. I'm telling you, I'm getting the calls here, Kevin, on pot stocks. I, I, yeah. I'm not going to make retirement wolf. If you get me a couple of good pot stocks, maybe, I, I'm not kidding you. I'm, I'm being very, very serious. If you're just joining us on Hi-Fi Radio AM 640, uh, you're joined by the macro tourist, Kevin Muir. Uh, great to have you with us, Kevin. Um Tell, tell me about the, the, the history of, of yourself, because you've got a very colorful history. And you told me a very, very interesting story how you created the first uh, indexed option uh, trading software. Well, no. So I was, I was the index arbitrager at uh, RBC Dominion Securities for the, uh, on the institutional desk. So I was the guy making markets uh, for all the big pension funds for um, TIPS and HIPS, which were the, the kind of before XIUs, which is the ETF that's based on the whole index. Yep. And I did that. And uh, so I, that was part of my day-to-day job. But on the side, eventually, uh, you know, I was using a lot of computerized software. This was in the mid-90s. And then in the, I was doing this computerized software, and I realized that we could write automated um, routines that made it so we could buy 
research emotion or whatever stock in Canada. Nortel. In, or Nortel at the time, and then instantly <laughs> sell it in uh, in New York and lock in, you know, figure out the currency and then, you know, it's, it's sell the currency and then lock in the profit. So we did this kind of, I started writing this thing for using the computer and you know my boss came over and said what are you doing and I explained to him that we were writing the software to do this he said why are you doing this I have 20 guys doing that and I said exactly we're going to have one computer doing it <laughs> that's so, scary um, that's a scary story we did all story. sorts of kind of innovative things like that that were a lot of fun back then so, so what, what made you leave the business um the the bank ended up being uh, when I started at RBCDS the, uh, it was more of Dominion Securities and it wasn't uh, it was a fun place to work. It was a, it was great. It was innovative. It was entrepreneurial. Gradually, the bank you know became more involved, and it became more like working at a bank than at an entrepreneurial place. Mm-hmm. So, so I hit this point you know in 2000 where um, I had my first kid, and it, or my wife and I had our first kid, and we uh, and I said you know what life's a little short. I'm going to just kind of decide to go off on my own, and you know if I make it all great, and if not, I'll go find another job. So I kind of quit as I said at the one of our best quarters ever. I said, that's it. And I kind of took off and I started working for myself and I've been doing that ever since. Just trading your own account. Yeah. Nice. Kevin, you're, you're absolutely brilliant. Will you come back on the show with us? Sure. Sounds great. This Anytime, is, guys. And, and if the, the macrotourist.com, if people go to your website, can they, can they subscribe to your blog for free? For sure. Yep. My goodness me. You're giving away all that education of yours. You're a very, very kind man. Thank you again. You've been terrific. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Great. Kevin. Take care. Bye-bye. Excellent. Well, coming up next on the show, we are going to be talking oil. No, we're going to be talking technology. Yes, we are. We're going to be talking technology with Michael Graham. Uh, Netflix, Google, Apple, all those big, big hyper-tech stocks that are apparently Earth-friendly as well. We're going to find the spin on that as well right after this. Stay with us. There's more shows still to come. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from the AM640 studios in Toronto. Love of Money, Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein. Talk Radio, AM 640. Welcome back to the show, Hi-Fi Radio, AM 640. I'm your host, Wolfgang Klein, and Jack, host with the mostest, Hartle in the studio with us. Uh, Joining us is Michael Graham. He covers those very, very sexy tech stocks, Facebook, Netflix, Google, Amazon. I have to ask you, I'm going to open up with... um, Sir Michael Graham, is Amazon taking over the world? Should we fear Amazon? How are you? It's always good to talk to you. Uh, Thank you. You know, I think I think Amazon has taken over parts of the world for sure. Um, they're they're just you know growing uh, in leaps and bounds in a bunch of different directions. They, you know, the company has a license from Wall Street to uh, to invest a lot of money and to keep margins low for for a long time, and they're investing in everything from. Uh, more warehouses so they can ship you product quickly to refrigerated warehouses so they can ship you groceries quickly uh, to, um, you know, movies and content so they can offer you uh, as part of the Amazon Prime package uh, free entertainment. Um, and then they're also building out this, uh, this mammoth uh, Amazon Web Services offering so they can become a big cloud computing provider. And I believe uh, like some people do, that they're also building out uh, a shipping business so that in five to ten years they'll have an offering that looks a lot like UPS and FedEx, 
where they're selling it to uh, other companies. Well, no, that's just it. Uh, Jack and I bought UPS for our clients about a year and a half ago, thinking that, hey, more people are shopping at Amazon. Jack's wife loves to shop online, and, she, and, and the brown truck shows up every day. He said, well, if we should buy Amazon, my wife's bidding up the stock. I said, I'm going to go along with you on that one. And next thing you know, we hear that Amazon is considering putting a great big uh, blimp in the sky and having little uh, what are they, drones coming out of the back port to, to deliver us anything from pizzas to, uh, I guess, refrigerators. I don't know how they carry a refrigerator on a drone, but who knows in this day and age, eh? <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I, I think that's that's true. And, you know, Amazon Web Services uh, was a business they started to do to offer cloud computing t- to companies. And they really, it, it, it originally started as an internal resource to help Amazon have enough computing power to get through the holiday season. Uh, and then they found that they had a lot of excess capacity during the low season. And so they figured out they could sell that capacity on a temporary basis to other companies. And it's the same story in shipping. When they get into the holiday season, um, FedEx and UPS get overloaded and they need their own. So they've been buying planes and they've been buying, you know, airport hangers and all that stuff. And so over time, I think they're just going to have to invest in so much capacity to handle their own e-commerce business during the holidays that they're going to have extra capacity to sell at other times. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio on the Phone with us, we have Michael Graham, uh, Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management analyst, covering dynamic companies like uh, Facebook and Netflix. Let, let's let's jump over to Netflix, Michael. Um, again, spending billions of dollars on content, uh, certainly putting the big studios uh, to challenge, uh, and again fighting for market share over profitability. It sounds similar to what Amazon has done. Uh, what's going on at Netflix? Yeah, Netflix is another one of these, you know, long-term uh, powerhouse uh, growth stories. Uh, as you point out, they're spending $6 billion uh, this year on originally produced content. You know, to put that in perspective, uh, that's probably more than all of the traditional Hollywood entertainment companies combined. Wow. And um, what they're really doing is um, they're looking ahead to a point in time when um, – they are going to be competing for subscribers uh, with a lot of other offerings that are digital offerings. You know, up until very recently, Netflix was really the only way to watch a video content on your tablet or on your PC or your mobile device. And now there are lots of options. And so they understand that they need to have a lot of exclusive content um, in order to draw people into the service. And the other thing is they kind of looked up and said, wait a minute, you know, we're licensing Orange is the New Black. Uh, from Lionsgate, and if that does really well in the first year, then in the second year they're going to charge us twice as much, and that's no way to make a living. And so they know that if they can make the content themselves, they don't have to pay royalties in the future. So they've been actively shrinking the content that they're licensing from others while they're really doubling down on their own originally produced content. So that obviously costs a lot of money to produce that stuff up front, and then you can you know, monetize it over time, and that's been impacting their profit margins and keeping them pretty low in the near term, but, um, but I think it's a pretty smart long-term strategy. Mm-hmm. Just another name that you cover, Mike, uh, Facebook. Um, obviously, they're a, a digital leader uh, in social media. What are they doing with all the personal information that they gather in terms of target marketing? 
You know, um, Facebook's ability to leverage data is indeed uh, a hallmark of the of the strength of the company, and it's really um, sort of bridging the gap between brand-based marketing and direct response marketing. And in, 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 in the early days of Internet, um, you know, the ads were display ads. They were sold on an impression basis, uh, a lot like, you know, a newspaper, a magazine, or even a television ad. Um, that morphed fairly quickly into what we call direct response, where the advertiser's not buying an impression, but they're buying a click. Uh, mm-hmm. They're buying uh, somebody to download their uh, app or to go to their website. Uh, you know, what Facebook is doing now is they're able to use all of the data to measure uh, whether or not they increased a consumer's propensity to interact with a brand in the future. And that's really the ultimate currency in advertising. And um, I think we're just at the forefront of this. Uh, Facebook's ad prices um, are going uh, higher and higher, and it's because they're able to really demonstrate that they're hitting the right consumer uh, at the right time, and that's you know performing well for the advertisers. And what what are you seeing with the ad load that they have on their website now? Is it uh, is it at capacity, or is there still room to run there? You know, um, they have they have an ad load of about five uh, percent, and you know what that means is. Um, hmm. Uh, you know, one out of every 20 content items that you see on Facebook is an advertisement. And on Instagram, their sister property, it's even a lot lower than that. Um, But even if you focus on that 5%, you know, that's a lot lower than television, which is sort of, you know, 12 minutes in every hour or or 20%. And, you know, uh, in radio, it's it's sort of the same in terms of uh, minutes per hour. So the ad load on Facebook is still pretty low relative to other media. Uh, the company has um, indicated that during the course of this year, they're not going to um, expand that ad load any further. Uh, it did go up in 2014 and 2015, and they're going to try to keep it where it is and see if they can continue to grow um, on uh, price increases. Um, and so we'll see how that goes. And, you know, uh, a lot of times media companies will – try to keep ad load lower and then they get pressure to grow revenue i'm being pressured uh, right now michael i got some ads to run over <laughs> we got our own ad load here and, and this is analog radio so yes about 12 minutes an hour but they're good ads and please support our sponsors you've been listening with michael graham of canaccord genuity wealth management tech analyst genius good friend of mine we're gonna have you back on air michael uh, and i do look forward to that i want to thank you very very kindly and coming up next we are going to talk oil with rafi of canoe energy if you're long oil, nat gas, uh, pipelines. He's the man. He knows the space very, very well, live from Calgary, right after this. Stay with us. There's more shows still to come. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from the AM640 Studios in Toronto. For the love of money, Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein. Talk Radio AM640. Welcome back to the show, Hi-Fi Radio, AM 640. On the line is Rafi of Canoe Financial. Rafi is my oil man, shall I say. Oil is a very, very difficult space for PMs, portfolio managers, to delve into. A lot of moving parts, and there I tend to leave it to the experts, and I want to join you, and thank you very much for being with us, Rafi. I appreciate you having me on. Now, Rafi, it is Earth Day. Uh, Can we speak in, in the same tongue, Earth Day and oil or energy is that is that, is that fair? Well, yeah, there's a stretch. No, there was no lightning. It didn't get hit by lightning, so it it can't be that bad. No, 
So, so, so what's the greener part? Let's, let's start with that. What's the greener part of, of, of Canada's energy patch? The greener part. The greener part is probably um, something that is not understood, and that is that you, you, we, we as Canadians are being told to feel guilty about our resource industry that has flourished and we've been able to benefit from, that we're dirty, that it's a dirty industry, that we are a part of the problem. Hmm. And um, what what they're not told is that we're globally we're addicted to oil. Glo- globally we we use oil, and we, we we use oil, and we create more of the pollution from the user than the producer. Mm-hmm. And the producers in Canada over several decades have been policed by what we call the regulator a regulatory board, the AUB, that has very very stringent. Um, rules in terms of how you operate as a producer. And I would categorize them as some of the best in the world. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the carbon output, their carbon footprint has greatly diminished. You're focusing on talking about the heavy oil, the oil sands that has gotten certainly a bad reputation for Canada in the last decade, shall we say. How about some of the, the reclamation that we've uh, we've heard about and the costs associated with that, Rafi? Uh, reclaiming some of the land, making it clean again after it's been used. Um, for for decades as oil fields. Yeah, so that's an area that I would say I can't argue in favor of the patch. Um, What it is is we needed more regulation to uh, stimulate a faster pace of reclamation. The companies, it was done in in transition, so there was no reclamation really uh, ruling for several decades. And then back in the 90s, they started to say, wait a minute, you have to account for the cost of the reclamation on your books. Not that you'd have to do it, but that you have to accept that there's a cost to the reclamation, and it has to be punitive to your books, to your financial statements, to, to have it. Uh, I'm simplifying it, of course. Sure. We went to the next step now in this big social movement, which I think was a good step, in saying, no, you can't just account for it financially. Now you're going to have to go in and actually do it. But the point I was making earlier is, what are you doing? You're reclaiming, and the way we reclaim is of the best in the world. Well, let's get to you. So, Rafi, uh, let's let's get down to business now. Uh, how do we make money in the energy patch? Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, you, you make money in, in the energy patch um, by investing in good companies and trying to figure out when the sector is undervalued. At a, at, from from a broad energy life cycle perspective, and, and what, what what's what's undervalued right now? Where's the value? And, and I guess why is also uh, international money leaving Canada? We we talk about uh, right. Shell, ConocoPhillips, uh, Chevron potentially. Uh, these are big big companies that have a lot of capital that we need to actually develop these lands. Uh, why are they leaving Canada? Yeah, so you you just hit the elephant in the room there, um, and that goes towards how do we make money in energy? How you make money in energy in Canada might not be as lucrative as how you make money in energy globally. Right. Because of the situation, this, this uh, aggressive social movement here, this um, to push away that uh, overweighting the environment relative to the economy, um, which is uh, a prob- the problem. What we did is we made our jurisdiction very unfavorable for international investment. Whether it's money coming in to invest in the companies or whether it's companies coming in investing in our assets. Mm-hmm. 
the companies are leaving because the jurisdiction is no longer seen as one for favoring growth mm-hmm. in it. There's the investment community says, well, there's higher taxes, they're spending money on infrastructure. We can't see where that infrastructure is. We saw bottlenecks and and, 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 uh, uh, big differentials with oil prices. So what happens is the money doesn't come in. Well, what's that matter to anybody? That's a very silent killer. Hmm. Okay, Look at the volumes on the Toronto Stock Exchange and and the oil patch. The oil industry, I move a billion dollars of energy around. I need liquidity. I need the ability for it to trade. It doesn't trade with Canadian money. No. It trades with U.S. money. Yep. The best way to look at that, look at the volumes on the Toronto exchange when the U.S. market's closed. Yeah, there is no volume. <laughs> there is no volume. We no. might as well be closed, too. Yeah, agreed. We don't, we don't function without their markets operating. And they don't want to be here anymore because the jurisdiction is no longer favorable for investing. We, we absolutely spiral. Into, we become a wilted flower. I call it the destruction of our net asset value. So now that now that we've done this to ourselves, what's what's the way forward for Canadian oil and to make money in in Canada in the oil patch? Well, we are going to have to rely on uh, key global fundamentals like oil oil price and gas price, and it's going to drag us higher. It's not going to be through what we've done or what we're doing in our. I don't believe these two parties, these two um, political parties running Alberta and the federal party, will will. Uh, be able to, or will be capable of, or desire to reverse what they're doing and 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 think the other way. So, in Canada, it's going to require a new uh, new governments. It's going to re- require a, uh, a changeover. And in the meantime, what we have to do is focus our efforts in moving into. Um, investments in the U.S. Rafi, you're getting your, you're getting your music, pal. It, 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 yeah. That's what it's all about. We kill them with music, baby, because uh, that, that's the high fidelity part of hi-fi radio, my good Love friend. You, you've been terrific, and I'm going to have you back on the show. I want to thank you very, very much for joining us. Coming up next, we are going to get the real estate king of Toronto. You've seen his picture, that big sheep in wolf's clothing, sort of not. Brad Lamb coming up next to talk real estate, and we're going to talk again about is there a bubble right after this. Don't go anywhere. There's more great show right after this. Life would be sunny. Plenty of money and you. are listening to Hi-Fi Radio from the AM640 Studios in Toronto. For the love of money, Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein. Talk Radio AM640. Welcome back to Hi-Fi Radio, AM 640. Wolfgang Klein in the studio, Jack Hartle by my side, and of course we got Jamie Watson, the great voice of AM 640, here with you for our last interview with a very, very important man, Mr. Brad Lamb of Lamb Developments. You know who I'm talking about because this man has a face for billboards, and yet we're going to have him on the radio, very handsome man. Welcome, Brad. <laughs> How are you? I'm terrific, thank you. How was City Hall? It was fun. I'm sure, I'm sure it was. Being a real estate developer, I guess you're getting good at City Hall, going back and forth and getting those permits, uh, or not. No, you, you, no one's good at it. It's, it's always tough. It's tough, yeah. It's always tough. Well, you know, uh, Brad, it's tough for millennials right now in, 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 in the urban centers uh, to be able to afford a home. Uh, affordability in, in the major, major centers is just uh, beyond the means of so many people. I'm, I'm going through a piece here by RBC showing the percentage of income to purchase a home in that same town that you worked. And there's many centers in Canada, such as 
ooh, shall I say Saskatoon, where it's below 20%. Um, but here in uh, Toronto, uh, what, almost 50% of income uh, and, and pushing higher to, to, to be able to afford a mortgage. Um, what is one to do? Well, I mean, I don't think people are going to like to hear this, but the reality is as cities develop into being, you know, world-class megacities like, um, you know, Hong Kong and Sydney and New York and, uh, um, uh, you know, Paris and London, like, you know, there's 25 or 30 of these cities. Everyone in those cities has the same complaint. They're expensive, and Toronto is an expensive city, and I think that... Um, you know, currently we're probably operating at about a 65% owner versus 10 ratio in in the city or in the 416, and I think that's going to flip to exactly the opposite of that: 35% owned and 65% tenanted. Mm-hmm. And I think that that you know, as long as people can get a home, like an apartment home, let's say, um, and 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 know that they're uh, there for as long as they want to be, and they're not going to get kicked out because it's not going up for sale. And they're not going to get, uh, you know, inordinate rent increases. Then I think that's okay. I think that's the way the city is going to evolve. Um, it's just the reality. We're not going to change that. There's nothing that anyone can do. Government, nobody can change the reality of Toronto being expensive. Yeah, well, now, look, a good piece by Howard Marks uh, speaking about just that, that uh, real estate can certainly have regional differences that can remain elevated for extended periods of time. But I do want to ask you then, uh, in terms of government action today uh, that we just heard, that they're going to implement something similar to what was implemented in Vancouver, uh, I hear you chuckle a little bit, uh, 15% uh, I guess we're going to call it import tax for for, for non-residents to to, to purchase uh, Toronto real estate. What's your thoughts on this? Well, it's a terrible idea. Um, I mean, government interfering in free markets is always a bad idea, but this is a particularly bad idea. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in Vancouver, they've done it, and for six months, from August to now, yeah. there's been a, a little bit of a slowdown and a little bit of softening in price. Uh, prices haven't fallen, but they haven't risen by the huge amounts yet. March this last month, sales are up 54% month over month. Wow. So, you know, the little slowdown is over, and it's full steam ahead for price appreciation in, um, in Vancouver. So I, so here's the thing. You know, what, what does that tax do? That tax is, is going to pretty well guarantee that, uh, you know, in Vancouver it's mostly Chinese-Asian buyers that are buying. Mm-hmm. They, they were never a large factor, just like in Toronto, in the resale existing home market. That's not where the Chinese investors buy. They buy condos from floor plans um, prior to the building breaking ground. Mm-hmm. They, they help finance, just like early investors in sure. a startup company, mm-hmm. the early investors in a condo building. They take risk along with the builder. They buy apartments at, at better pricing than, than uh, you know, if they did it four years later when the building is finished. Um, we need those people to, to help build our cities. And because uh, local, you know, local residents uh, do not have the capital to make the growth po- possible in either Vancouver or Toronto. So now what's happened is, you know, they're not buying those, those units now in Vancouver. So new development is grinding to a halt. That's what's going to happen here in Toronto. Developers who are dependent on foreign investors to buy their units, and many, many are dependent. If you're selling a 1,000-unit building in Toronto, and there's been lots of these projects that have, uh, two-phase projects that have been successful, that's not happening by, you know, mothers and fathers wheeling their baby into the showroom. <laughs> that's not happening. So that that's going to go away to a large extent, or at least slow down dramatically. So... What does what is this tax supposed to accomplish in Vancouver? 
and Toronto. It's supposed to establish uh, a, you know, more affordable pricing or, or less uh, increases of, of, of pricing year over year. And it's going to actually do the opposite because oh. development will slow down. Uh, so less product will hit the marketplace, you know, finished product for rent and for sale. So it's going to drive rents higher. It's going to drive prices higher. It's the exact opposite action wow. uh, that they should take, and it's going to make it worse for do, people. Uh, do you actually see any good news coming out of uh, uh, Ontario government today with Kathleen Wynne's announcement? Any any now, positives? You know, very, very bad day for Ontarians. I mean, very <laughs> bad day. Uh, you know, I'll say this. I think that, um, you know, over the last two years or three years, uh, a lot of my colleagues and myself have, have uh, considered or started um, apartment buildings, purpose-built apartment buildings instead of condo sites. And we've done it because the, the numbers started to look okay. Like in the last three years, it looked like you could get enough rent for a new unit to cover your costs and make a reasonable, not a big return, maybe a four-cap rate or a three-and-a-half cap rate. I don't know if you're... Yeah, no, absolutely. That makes sense. But, the, the audience doesn't, but we do, yeah. Okay, well, anyway, so, uh, so you know, there's been about 15 to 20 projects talked about or green-lighted in Toronto. Um, now, that's all going to change because they did it based on, um, you know, no rent controls on those units. Right. Now, on one hand, I understand that tenants want rent controls. They don't want to get large rent increases year over year. On sure. the other hand, they want more stock. Yeah. So if we don't increase the stock of housing for rent, yeah. rents will go up. Yeah. So this is going to cause rents to go up because developers will not build apartment buildings under these guidelines. And if they do, it's going to be very few of them. Well, we have to house the children. I got three of them. Brad, I, I think about my kids, you know, how they're going to afford a home in this city of ours one day. And it, it, it's a real concern. Look, I want to thank you very, very kindly, Brad, for joining our show. Uh, you're a fantastic uh, broker and developer. I have a lot of respect for you and your family. So congratulations for all of your success here in Canada. Uh, Hi-Fi Radio, AM640. Uh, don't forget to visit our website, wolfgangkline.com. If you have any questions for our guests, feel free to post them on our website. And we can certainly forward them to our guests. If you have any questions for Jack and I in the world of finance or anything for that matter. We're here for you. Uh, AM 640 High Five Radio. Thank you very much.